Welcome back to the leading edge of integrative mental health. I'm your host, Lisa Dale Miller. Please review and subscribe to the Groundless Ground podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Radio.com, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, and of course, find out more at GroundlessGround.com. I'm ready to go. How about you? Psychologist Jim Hopper and I discuss the neurobiology of trauma, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD, the critical role embodied treatment modalities play in trauma healing, and applied Buddhist psychology for trauma resolution. Jim fully explicates the process used in the FDA-approved and MAPS-sponsored MDMA Phase three trials, discusses the results, and clarifies for whom MDMA, ketamine, or psilocybin sessions could provide adjunctive trauma treatment. We also discuss a habit model of understanding trauma response, as well as an updated ethical view of addiction. Jim is a consummate communicator, and that, coupled with his depth and breadth of knowledge about trauma therapy, make this episode a critical listen for every clinician working in the trauma field today. Jim Hopper, it is a tremendous honor to have you on the Groundless Ground podcast. Thank you so much for agreeing to be here. Thank you for the invitation. It's great to be here. We're going to talk about a number of things that I think most people, especially therapists, probably have no idea about, or at least they have ideas about the things we're going to talk about that might be really different. You've been in the field a long time, and you have been someone who has been at the forefront of trauma therapy. So I'm a clinical psychologist by training, and I've focused on trauma uh, for a long time. So I started focusing on trauma when I met Russell Vanderkolk back in the late 80s, early 90s, in between undergrad and grad school, and you know, participated in a low-level way in a study of dissociation among inpatients and sort of started entering into that world of of Bessel and and all the amazing people that he draws to him. And as a grad student, I studied trauma from the perspective of men and their histories of abuse in childhood, and then which ones went on to perpetrate. And that was my focus there and how gender could shape their emotional life in ways that would increase their risk of perpetrating. And then after graduate school, uh, I did a postdoc at the trauma center and ran Bessel's lab for a few years. And at that time, I was already interested in the neurobiology, but now I had a chance to do some studies of psychophysiology and, and some neuroimaging work with also Ruth Lanius in Canada to look into traumatic memories and their nature. And also we did a big study on EMDR versus fluoxetine. And also that was a training in, you know, the treatment of complex trauma simultaneously while doing the research there for a couple of years. So that's part of my background. Even before that, I, I met and got to hang out with uh, Judy Herman for a while at her Victims of Violence program and take seminars there. So being here in Boston, you know, I've had the privilege and the honor of being around some really amazing trauma people and, and all the people that they draw to them, like for Bessel's annual conference, for example. Uh, also, I'm a long-term meditator, so I've been meditating uh, primarily in the Vipassana tradition since college. Uh, I've done a number of you know, nine-day retreats at Insight Meditation Society here in Massachusetts and found those great experiential learning. 
that meditation work uh, very much informs the way I think about trauma, the way I think about healing. Uh, I try to integrate what I learned from Buddhist practice and, and reading about Buddhist psychology with neuroscience research and neurobiology readings that I do, also trauma treatment, addiction treatment. I'm kind of an eclectic person who likes to bring together lots of different things. And then at some point I started teaching police and prosecutors and judges and military people to translate some of the things we've learned about how when people are under attack, how evolution has shaped their brains to respond and how that shapes their thinking and their attention and their behavior and memory formation. So I'm trying to help transform the law enforcement and legal systems in this country and other countries. But it's been a tough year and people are throwing around the word trauma a lot, maybe to describe things that may not be trauma or maybe trauma or traumatic experience people didn't think about as traumatic experience before. Since you already mentioned complex trauma, CPTSD and PTSD and trauma, maybe you would be the perfect person to give the listeners just a quick sense of the differences between those labels. Sure. Well, you know, one definition of trauma that I like is, you know, we can think of stress and then traumatic stress. And traumatic stress is stress that overwhelms the coping capacities of the person, of the organism. Uh, so that's one way of thinking about stress. But whether we're overwhelmed by an experience or a series of experiences, or when we're reminded of an old experience, then we become overwhelmed. So much of that is a function of our relationships, the social context we're in. So I really don't think we can understand trauma outside of the way we're embedded in relationships and families and communities and, and all that can go on there in terms of traumatic experiences and their, and their impact. You know, PTSD is a helpful diagnosis. It captures some of the things that people struggle with in the aftermath of traumatic experiences, but there's way more that people can struggle with in the aftermath of traumatic experiences that is not captured by PTSD. And one way people have dealt with that is by coming up with this definition of complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which looks at disruptions in identity and emotion regulation and somatic issues. The other thing I would say though is that, you know, an outcome of trauma can be depression. Some people are not tormented by flashbacks. They're shut down um, and right. defeated and demoralized. So trauma can have so many different effects. And of course, people can cope with unwanted physiological states, emotional states that are, have their origins in trauma with addictive behaviors, not just substance abuse, but that can play out in eating disorders and other addictions. And people who are seeking power, fame, to get on lots of podcasts, you know, whatever it might be, you know, <laughs> we all have our things that we get attached to and, and, and seek out, not always in the most healthy ways. I, I love the term trauma dumping, which has become very, very popular on Clubhouse of all places. What does it mean? I don't even know that. So trauma dumping, at least in the context of Clubhouse, people will use a Clubhouse room mm -hmm. to come up on stage and basically just start laying out all this awful stuff that's ever happened to them for two reasons. One, as you just said, they need the ego boost or they just need affirmation. And two, to try and get the physicians or psychotherapists who may be moderating the room to give them treatment to try to help them in a clubhouse room. We saw a lot of trauma dumping when trauma really started to enter yeah. the culture in a big way, in a popular way in the 80s with like Oprah and Geraldo Rivera and shows like that. Right. There was a lot of trauma dumping going on there. And a lot of it was very sensational and exploitative and re-traumatizing yes. for people. Very much so, yes, yes. That's, that's been going on for a long time in our culture. 
And in general, you know, we tend to either sensationalize these things and make them into a spectacle, or yep. we tend to push them under the rug and, and deny the reality of traumatized people. The Ground This Ground audience has had a lot of access to prior episodes on traumas. They know the basic mechanics of trauma physiology. Would you like to say something about your view on, on this? I do think there's some misunderstanding around that. And as someone who's really focused very attentively and carefully on how people actually respond when they're being, for example, sexually assaulted, that I think mm -hmm. fight or flight and fight, flight, freeze have been very destructive and harmful to people as a framing concept um, because most mm -hmm. people don't fight or flee and they don't have a lot of shame around it. And if you actually really dig into the science, the guy who supposedly coined this term, Walter Cannon, never actually wrote the words in any of his publications. He was a physiologist. He didn't even study behavior. So I think there's a lot of confusion and misconception there. And that's something that I address in my work in the sexual assault world. So I think you and I are somewhat on the same page, though I would say the bulk of my patients have chronic freeze. Fight and flight, not so much. So if you want to say more about that, I'm happy to let you do it. Maybe just a little bit, because the response that someone has at the time of, for example, being assaulted, and then there's the physiology and the responses afterwards. And I'm primarily focused right here and now on when the attack is happening. And I think it's really important to realize that a lot of the behaviors we see are more habit sort of behaviors. So, and the word freeze is a very, it's, it's a term that can mean so many different things, but I think we, mm -hmm. we can be a lot more specific and precise than that. And so when people are being assaulted, they may freeze in the sense that the ethologists and those who study animal behavior and some of the neuroscientists who look at this talk about, which is that what happens when there's a detection that something is dangerous, that something is wrong or you're under attack and everything stops the freezing of movement, right? But it's not just movement that stops your thoughts. Suddenly the network gets scrambled and your mind goes blank so that you can receive information and hopefully generate some kind of response. So from a neurobiological kind of, you know, how evolution shaped our brains to respond, that's a technical use of the word freeze. Whereas, you know, there's a lot of different ways people may not move during a sexual assault. They may be in tonic immobility where they're paralyzed and their muscles are rigid. They may be in collapsed immobility where there's a massive parasympathetic hit and they feel dizzy and even pass out and their muscles go limp. I distinguish those from freezing because they're different things. And evolution has put them into our brains because they help, for example, at different stages of an assault. But then there are so many other ways that people may not resist during an assault or they may resist in very passive, submissive ways that are habit behaviors, you know, things we've all learned for how to deal with aggressive and dominant people, things people have learned witnessing domestic violence in their home, being sexually or physically or emotionally abused as a child. And those habit behaviors are actually a huge um, proportion of what I see in people who are being sexually assaulted. And they're not fighting, they're not fleeing, and they're not freezing, but they're habits that people have learned. And then they beat up on themselves for them. And they're completely missing from this framework of fight, flight, or freeze. I frame it as survival mode in which the brain shifts to reflex and habit behaviors. Some people may reflexively fight or flee. Sometimes people may flee or fight out of habit. But more often, they're engaged in habit behaviors that are habits of submission, compliance, those sorts of things. You know, nice girl habits that people learn how to deal with unwanted sexual advances that will work with many guys who are going to take that signal but a determined perpetrator is not going to. 
but people can then get stuck in very ineffective habits because they don't have a prefrontal cortex to stop that perseveration and inhibit that habit behavior. These are some of the things that I found really helpful to reframe this instead of fight, flight, fight, flight, freeze, because fight or flight doesn't account for most of it. Freeze doesn't account for the rest of it very well. And anytime you're starting with fight or flight, people are absorbing in that and they're taking in that those are the main things. And geez, what's wrong with me that I didn't do that? So I'm not naive. You know, these terms and these phrases are very embedded in our culture. I don't think I'm going to change them on my own, even maybe with a lot of help. But I can't help but say I think there's way better language. So thank you. I think listeners can already tell we're going somewhere different. I actually want to quote from your 2020 article. And for any of you who are interested, the links will be in the show notes. But this is a a fabulous article. It's called Values and Visions for the Field of Psychological Trauma from Brain to Remoralization and Social Transformation. That title alone basically says, okay, trauma field, we're going somewhere different than you're used to going. You say the trauma field must recognize that psychological traumatization entails unhealthy values and addiction. So this one sentence alone could have the entire trauma field's hackles going up. I think this needs to be said. And this article lays out not just the neurobiology of this, but really a very beautiful path by which therapists and trauma professionals could start to rethink how they vision what trauma is and how it impacts people and the pathway to heal and go beyond it. I mean, that's my hope. I'm I'm hoping to point to some things that I think are not focused on that much in in the current trauma theory field and and the the way people think about how therapies work um, and to offer something that, uh, you know, hopefully people will find helpful. You use the word addiction. Well, yeah, first I can talk about the circuitry a little bit and then connect that to the to values. And just to let people know that when I talk about values, it doesn't mean I'm judging people for their values or moralizing in any way. I'm just pointing to something that I think is just real and, and worth acknowledging. So most people have heard of the reward circuitry. NIDA has spent, you know, a billion dollars probably on animal and other research studying the circuitry. Um, you know, we hear a lot about dopamine in, in popular culture and what the functions of dopamine are. But, you know, one person who I've been very influenced by is a guy named Jakob Panksepp. He wrote a book called Affective Neuroscience, which is a very important kind of textbook that launched that field in, in a way. And Jakob talks about how there's a circuitry of seeking and the reward circuitry really can be parsed into two different Subcircuitries and seeking is one of them. So that's, you know, it involves the ventral tegmental area and the nucleus accumbens, and dopamine plays a very important role in it. And basically, anything we want or seek out, not just through our behavior, but through the, all the fantasies, the default mode fantasies running around in our heads all the time, this is in part running on the seeking circuitry. Another way to think of the seeking circuitry is it's kind of the life force coming through our brains and bodies that's driving us forward to seek out food, shelter, connection with other people, water, calcium, you know, whatever our body needs. Um, we, in order to get it, we need to seek it out. And this is the circuitry that is fundamentally involved in that. And so the seeking circuitry has been put into our brains by evolution. And there's certain things that we value just as organisms and just as mammals um, that we can't help but value. 
So we value feeling connected to other people. Now, obviously there are some people who are on the autistic spectrum and you know have different levels of wanting and seeking out human connection. But in general, I think most of us would agree that the mammalian and human brain evolved to seek out connection. This is a circuitry that is always on. It's always running. It's involved with what the Buddhists call the second skanda. Everything that's arising in our experience, everything's being processed through our sensations, thoughts, and fantasies that are arising in our heads. All these are automatically being tagged as positive, negative, or neutral. And the shell of the nucleus accumbens and part of the amygdala are involved in these salience attributions. And then if it's tagged as positive, then wanting and seeking are going to arise. And so the seeking circuitry is underlying craving, which is seen as one of the, the fundamental sources of suffering in Buddhism. But not all seeking is craving, not all seeking is grasping. And that's something I really like to bring attention to, that seeking is part of life, it is part of how we evolve, it is part of how our minds and brains work. The Tibetans are always asking is, what is your motivation? So seeking isn't necessarily bad. It's bad when it's conditioned by ignorance and grasping at that which is not going to bring liberation and happiness and, and love and play and all the good stuff. Seeking is just part of life, and there's a circuitry in all of our brains that is implementing the seeking at all times. So that's how I would sort of sketch it out just from a neurobiological and putting it together with some other Buddhist and other ideas. And we seek what we value. So some of the things we value are hardwired. And this is something that Panksepp and others have talked about. But of course, a lot of the things we value, we learn from our families, we learn from our culture, from our religion, from advertisers. We seek what we value and we value what we seek. In the trauma field, we hear a lot about emotion dysregulation. And we, in a lot of that frame, which is totally valid, is that people are trying to regulate heightened physiological states of arousal. If we look at emotion dysregulation, these are habits of seeking to avoid and escape unpleasant, unwanted embodied states. In the trauma world, there's so much focus on physiology and, and window of tolerance and bringing down the hyperarousal and everything, which is all beautiful, um, beautiful work. But we also, I think it's helpful to look at this seeking circuitry and how a lot of the dysregulation trauma is what the Buddhists would point out is seeking, clinging, grasping, valuing things that are not healthy, that are not conducive to flourishing. My experience is that a lot of the problem with the way people with trauma, particularly chronic trauma histories, specifically early developmental, if it really starts back then, there's a more disembodied kind of mentation that they are habituated to. And that this kind of distorted mentation becomes the reality. It's almost like a virtual reality running in the background that becomes the reality. And I find that a lot of the quote unquote emotion dysregulation is there's salience to the distorted reality that has very little to do with what is actually occurring in embodied experience. The problem is not desire. It is not the seeking. The problem is the misapprehension of what is actually there because part of the distorted mentation is something like what they describe in the PTSD description as having a lot of difficulty with things that look, feel, and smell like the experience you may have had. But that's essentially giving more weight to an experience that happened at some point, 
happened that is just being glommed on to most all experience. So from a Buddhist point of view, this is one of those great uses of seeing things as they actually are, seeing through the body, not necessarily seeing through some story that the mind is creating. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I think, yeah, for a lot of people uh, who are suffering with trauma, like you say, especially early trauma, where they didn't feel safe and regulated in their bodies and connected to their to their parents, there's there's like there's all this stuff spinning around in their head and their thoughts and perceptions okay. and the narratives and the schemas and the stories they're telling themselves. And then there's all this stuff happening in their body. And a lot of the stuff in their head, actually, I think is being driven by what's going on in their body, but they're not attending interoceptively to their embodied mm -hmm. experience. And yeah. so I think that's part of it. And, you know, people talk a lot these days about experiential avoidance, whether this is mindfulness world or the act world mm -hmm. or wherever, experiential avoidance. And I would say experiential avoidance, as, as many have, is a habit of seeking to avoid the experience of embodiment and unpleasant embodiment. And so they may be spinning around in thoughts about this and that, or I wish I'd said that to that person, or I'm going to lose my job or whatever. But a lot of it is actually being driven by not wanting, not feeling safe and comfortable in their body. And then, of course, the ways that things happening in the world are triggering old memories of ways they were betrayed, ways they were abandoned, all those sorts of things. Yeah. And there's a lot of research on that in terms of implicit perceptions of things that are outside of awareness and activating schemas. And, you know, even from a psychoanalytic point of view, you can talk about object relations. I mean, there's many different ways you could think about that as functioning very automatically for people. Um, and yeah. the Buddhist terms, you know, kleshas we talk about, you know, these, these habits of thinking and perceiving. But it's also a really interesting question of what, what weight do we give to ignorance and what weight do we get in confusion? What weight do we give to the, the seeking? And then also to just whether people are able to be in their bodies experientially and access the unfolding wisdom that's potentially within their bodies rather than experiencing their bodies as just tormenting them and something to be avoided and escaped. So of course, this brings us to the second component of the reward circuitry, which is the satisfaction circuitry, which really becomes complex issue if you've had trauma around pleasure. So Pankstep <laughs> talked about the seeking circuitry. So can't blame him for my satisfaction circuitry too. In that reward circuitry, the, the dopamine is very much about the wanting and the seeking and everything. And often people get confused and say, oh, you're getting a dopamine squirt and that's what the pleasure is. The pleasure of dopaminergic seeking is more anticipatory pleasure. Whereas this the pleasure of what we could call the satisfaction sub-circuitry or circuitry is more the consumatory pleasure, the, the pleasure of satisfaction of fulfillment of getting that thing that you were seeking and now you're eating the ice cream cone or whatever this is associated with release of endogenous opioids and acting on the mu opioid receptor and so we've got an opioid epidemic going on where a lot of people are from external sources fentanyl and other things they're they're occupying those mu opioid receptors to calm and soothe themselves and it can quiet down craving and the dissatisfaction or dukkha that the buddhists talk about and so the satisfaction circuitry I would say it's primarily an opioid circuitry, but GABA seems to be involved. There's probably cannabinoids that are involved. You know, we used to think runner's high was opioids until recently they found out, well, guess what? It's, it's cannabinoids involved in that. Right. And, the, and the cannabinoid research is just huge. And I don't claim to understand it all. These are fundamental circuitries of seeking and then experiencing potentially satisfaction when you get what you seek or when you get connection to others in a, in a safe, loving way, or when you just have something that feels very satisfying. And so that satisfaction circuitry is something that I focus on. And I talk about, you know, how 
people are often seeking satisfaction, but they're not really getting much of it. They're getting these little quick fixes and they're just on the hedonic treadmill as, as the behavioral econ economics people say. And of course, we might both agree the habit of dysregulation in response, so reactivity, that habit actually is something that gets in the way of people being able to experience both the ability to know what is pleasurable, as well as the ability to be settled in the midst of experiencing pleasure. Yeah, and a lot of people, yeah, they're, they're, they're so disconnected from their bodies, or they're so confused yes. about what's, what's worth seeking and what's going to bring pleasure. And also just experiences of pleasure and positive emotion even can be very triggering for people. Emotions are a package deal. And if you're generally afraid of your embodied experience, mostly because of the bad things that you've been through and that come up in your body, and you avoid that, then you're also cutting yourself off from potential embodied experiences of pleasure, of joy, of ecstasy. So that's a huge loss for, for traumatized people um, is that they're often very cut off from joy and very, and like you're saying, very confused about what's gonna bring pleasure and, and afraid of it in ways that they're even not able to articulate. Yeah, I think there's a lot of fear of ecstasy, particularly when there's chronic collapse in the system. It's very frightening because no system can maintain ecstasy. And with that kind of physiology, you're gonna be crashing back down into collapse that's going to probably be even more intense than your baseline anhedonic response to things. Yeah, people have experienced that and are afraid of an even worse crash. And often people are afraid just to get their hopes up for, for something good because they've been dashed so many times and they've been betrayed so many times by other people. So yeah, hope is also a really loaded thing for a lot of people. Can you say a little bit about what will happen differently if we do recognize that there is this reward component, the habit of trying to make something happen by running the trauma circuitry over and over and over again. How can we help people break these kinds of habits? Talk about how this would be different if the trauma community was really recognizing the habitual nature. I think a lot of people do kind of recognize it implicitly. And they're, when you're teaching emotion regulation skills, you're teaching people first things that they have to focus on with their prefrontal cortex. Like, okay, I do this when I'm overwhelmed, I hold on to this rock, or I breathe in this way or whatever. But ultimately, what we're trying to do is impart to people or help them integrate new habits for how to respond when they quote, get triggered. Um, and so I think a lot of people kind of implicitly realize that. And I think there's a lot of things that are already going on that people are helping their clients, you know, in the psychotherapy role, they're helping their clients feel understood. They're helping them feel safe in their bodies, maybe with EMDR or other or somatic experiencing and things. They're helping them process traumatic memories and, and loosen the grip that those memories have over them. So I think people are already doing a lot of things that help people feel safer in their bodies. And then there's less of a drive to try to escape and to seek these escapes um, from unwanted embodied experience. So I think people are already doing that what I'm really excited about and what I didn't mention about some of the work I'm doing 
is the work with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. I'm a therapist at the Boston site with uh, some wonderful colleagues here, including some my co-therapist, uh, co Libby Call, who's a very experienced uh, long-term meditator and EMDR therapist and trainer. So I think the MDMA work is really powerful. And what I've witnessed in people being transformed uh, in, in their relationships to their traumas, to their embodied experience, transforming their values in that work. And so I think that's something that could be really helpful. And what I you know, like to do, I haven't written about it yet, but I'd, I'd like to try to help um, people think about how in these expanded states of consciousness that people can go into on MDMA and with ketamine and with psilocybin, MDMA is very reliably, you know, not so psychedelic in a hallucinogenic way, but helping people be in their body and with heart opening. I'm hoping that we can think about when people are in these experiences, on the one hand, they're able to turn toward the worst of their trauma and really be with it and seek to engage with their trauma, not to escape it, which I call one of the fundamental healing cycles, harnessing that seeking to turn toward the suffering, especially in the body, but also in these expanded states of consciousness, people access profound transcendent love and wisdom and joy and playfulness and beauty. And that can be very transformative as well. And when you get a taste of how much love there really is potentially within yourself and in you know, consciousness, whatever you want to think about it, um, that can be deeply transformative and inspiring. And that can really reorganize coming out of that experience, what you want to seek from now on. And integration is often about helping people find the new habits to help them seek out that which is truly satisfying. And some people don't get that much true satisfaction until they've had one of these very powerful psychedelic or MDMA experiences. And this is part of what we're seeing in the work, I think, is that it's not just people turning toward the suffering and the trauma memories and processing those, but accessing like these transcendent goods of love and play and beauty and, and joy and, and ecstasy and things like that. That is what is known in the field as a stamped in dopamine memory. You have a big experience that so radically does one of two things. It either gives you such an intense sense of relief from your suffering. Any meditator who's had a great meditation and then clings, I need to have that again, will tell you it's real. Any drug addict or alcoholic will tell you about the first time. I can hear how you're, you're sort of pointing at a potential for a substance like MDMA, which has this tendency to open up what Sony Rinpoche calls essence love, mm -hmm. which is this huge non-referential care and love and compassion just for existence, honestly. And then I agree with you, psilocybin, obviously, this things going on there neurobiologically, the prefrontal storm where things are just getting completely blown apart so that you have something that is so radically different in your perception than you've ever had before. And then it can become a foundation for something to want to go toward. You know, when you think of the way Robin Carhart Harris and other people frame how these classic psychedelics work, they, you know, they, they liberate us from these priors, from these schemas, from these things that are running out of the fault mode network, from the ways we tend to filter reality. And when we loosen the parameters of how our brain is typically constraining our experience, we can open up to things that are 
profoundly beautiful, you know, the, the love, the, you know, the things we've been talking about. So I think of them as giving you access to things which are beyond your typical ways of experiencing. And then the question is, what supports people to integrate that to which they have gotten access? Right. Because you know, so, some people do have these experiences and yeah, they want to cling to them and they want to hold on to them. But that's not what I'm talking about. It's not about mm-hmm. holding on to it or grasping it. It's talking about what's going to support making you more of a vehicle for that love, for that joy, for that playfulness in your regular life. And that's really what's so important about the psychedelic work is it's not just about preparing people to have a big experience. And sometimes those big experiences are hugely transformative on their own. But I think it's the integration work of supporting people to integrate what they have accessed, whether it's a profound love or a totally different experience of their embodiment or of a new perspective on the person who assaulted them or on their parent who they've never been able to forgive before or whatever it might be. And then how to help them integrate that. So it's not just some one-off, oh, I had a big experience, but it can be embodied going forward in their life and relationships. So that integration work would pretty much look like what those of us who have been doing embodied trauma therapy along with Buddhist psychological interventions. That's pretty much what we've been doing all along. Yeah, a lot of people have. Yeah, integration. I mean, that's one of the nice things about integration work. I mean, it can look like playing piano more. It can look like going for walks in nature more. It can it can look like so many things. There's so many ways people can embody these transformative ways of being in the world. And yeah, there's there's amazing spiritual practices from the Buddhist and other traditions. There's a lot of great trauma therapies that can help people integrate for sure. So why would a patient do MDMA rather than psilocybin? I'm not a big fan of ketamine. I have, you know, colleagues who've been doing it for a couple of years now who are very seasoned, uh, amazing trauma therapists who have been getting great transformation or, or people in Boulder who have been, you know, senior researchers and supervisors on the MDMA study who've been using ketamine with wonderful effects with people, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, not ketamine infusion clinic. And MDMA and psilocybin are, in some ways, are more promising, of course. So I'm not saying ketamine's better than those or anything like that. I'm just saying I use it with some of my clients. And You could listen to the episode with Silver Cavedo, who was running Polaris, the ketamine psychotherapy-assisted site out here. And even he agreed with me, ketamine is not appropriate for people who are collapsed and do have tremendous amounts of dissociation. Apparently, MDMA and psilocybin don't seem to have that issue. Just in psychotherapy, you don't necessarily have to do it over and over again. And even though it's a dissociative anesthetic, for a lot of people, it actually helps them be in their body in a safe way that they haven't been able to do before, paradoxically. I'm not part of the psilocybin study. So I'm only working with MDMA yeah. in the MAPS study. Yeah. And I use ketamine, you know, legally above ground. For which patient would you use either one? What makes you decide which treatment to apply? Well, the only people I mean, who can get MDMA are people that I would treat are people who are getting into the study, of course. So people who are not going to meet the criteria for the study or don't want to do the study then ketamine-assisted psychotherapy is an option for them. It's in private practice outside of the research. Um, but in the abstract, what would I say? You know, for some people, they actually might want to start with a, a low dose of ketamine, like a ketamine lozenge or rapid dissolving tablet. 
just to give them some familiarity with the principles of psychedelic therapy, you know, preparation and medicine session and integration. The ketamine-assisted sessions tend to be three hours, so it's not as huge a commitment. Some people are afraid to let go and open up in the way that MDMA can do. And, you know, I've had many conversations with Dick Schwartz about this. They have what we could call protector parts that are really not so on board with it and don't want to do it or can you can get a backlash even after an MDMA session that seems pretty good. And this may be one of the things for the people and, you know, not everybody's getting great benefit in the MAP study. And it may be one way to think about that is they may have parts that don't really want to open up that much so quickly. So if ketamine for some people could be a nice, gentle, easy way to, to explore what it's like to work in a psychedelic assisted psychotherapy kind of way. And you can take a very low dose of the, the lozenge and you can see what it's like to, to quiet down the default mode a bit, to feel some lightness, to feel more open and less defended in a way that's not blowing past your defenses. Whereas MDMA, you do a low dose of MDMA and you're just anxious because it is after all, methylene dioxymethamphetamine and the low <laughs> dose is more like a nocebo not a placebo it's like it's 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 unpleasant whereas ketamine is beautiful in that you can work at a whole continuum of doses and you can start out very low and see how that feels for the person in the future then you might move to mdma when it's legal after some ketamine for someone who isn't ready to have a big mdma experience you mentioned dick schwartz and of course he is the founder of internal family systems not sure if you want to say a little bit about IFS, just so listeners have a sense of what you mean when you say parts. So internal family systems is a model that basically says we have these different, we could call them parts. It's kind of just intuitive language that we tend to identify with. And we have parts that they call managers, the competent parts that show up to do a podcast, do something else at work or to be a competent parent or whatever. But part of the role of those manager parts is to keep out the unwanted stuff, including the trauma stuff. And we call those the parts that hold the memories, that hold the shame, that hold the really painful stuff, exiles in IFS. And so typically, you know, someone who's reasonably functional, they've got parts of them that they identify with that are fairly competent and that are pretty good at not only achieving things in life and in work and stuff, but it also at keeping out the overwhelming potentially trauma stuff. But it doesn't always work. Sometimes the triggers are too strong or you get re-traumatized or whatever. And then we have these parts that come out that are very reactive protector parts. And they call them firefighters is one term for them. And those are the parts that like might scream and yell at someone um, to just try and tolerate feeling helpless or feeling ashamed or something like that. Or that can abuse substances or do other very compulsive sorts of things. But also some of those extreme uh, protector parts can be the parts that just take you out and dissociate you and you just check out of your body. So from an IFS perspective, we have these different parts. You know, you don't want to get too rigid or reifying about it, but people tend to have these parts of them. You could think of them as apps that kind of run on their brain circuitries. They put them into these three categories and we tend to identify with different parts of us in different contexts and situations. But also they say, well, there's more to us than that. We're not just these parts. They talk about self, which you could also call them soul or you know, different language or concepts can go with it. And that those are these universal human capacities for love and compassion and courage and patience. Dimension of your being, you could say, that is beyond the parts, that is beyond any particular pain or suffering you've experienced. It's like kind of your essence. It's wise, it's loving, etc. So that's just a little bit on on IFS and these different parts. And so when I was referring to someone might after an MDMA session have a protector part, that's you know, usually good at keeping 
the scary stuff at bay or keeping people at bay because people are dangerous because they could betray you and hurt you. Now you've opened up on MDMA and you've experienced this incredible love and connection to your therapist. And there might be parts of you that don't feel so comfortable with that and are upset and angry about that and feel like they weren't sufficiently consulted before they jumped into that. And I've seen this happen um, and heard about it from people who've had these experiences. And IFS is one way of thinking about that. So am I to surmise that MDMA, it sort of takes offline these parts that might get in the way of some kind of opening, not just to the therapist, maybe to themselves, maybe even to the perpetrator, some kind of understanding about the nature of humans, human suffering that might not be tolerated if the part was functioning are you implying this? MDMA can give you very heightened access to what they call self-energy in IFS. And it doesn't necessarily take the parts offline. You know, from a Buddhist perspective, you don't have to identify with them. So they're offline and that maybe that manager part isn't what you're totally identified or blended with, as we say in IFS. For example, the most recent participant we worked with in the study was someone who had, you know, he had like read like a paragraph or two online about IFS and a therapist had mentioned at the end of a session for like two or three minutes one time. He didn't really know anything about IFS, something about all oh, these different parts or whatever. Within 35 to 40 minutes of his first dose of MDMA in his first medicine session, he went to this place, you know, he had the eye shades on, the headphones, you know, he wasn't talking to us, but he came out and reported to us. I had this experience, all these different parts of me were kind of sitting around in a circle and they were all present and they were all welcome. And I just took them one at a time and, and took them by the hand and had a conversation with them. It was a conversation of openness, empathy, curiosity about their experience, how they're trying to help, what's going on with them. He spontaneously did this IFS work on his own. And this is something that Michael Midhofer, the lead um, researcher on this for all the phase two work, you know, he wasn't trained in IFS when he first started doing the um, MDMA work, but then he got the training and he was like, oh my gosh, this is what people are spontaneous, have been spontaneously doing all along. And most of these MDMA-assisted sessions, people spontaneously go into a mode where they just experience tremendous love and openness and curiosity. It's not that the parts are like taken offline or banished in any way. You don't identify with the parts. You identify so much with self, as they would say in IFS, and you have this ability to just be open to and explore and, and imagination converse with all the different parts of now, maybe that someone who has a big backlash after a session, which that guy did not have, maybe in their case, yeah, that protector part that really wasn't into this kind of was pushed aside in the MDMA state. And then afterwards was like, hey, I didn't like that. In terms of the seeking mm -hmm. circuitry, yeah. how would you envision the way MDMA acts on brain networks mm -hmm. and the impact that it has on the seeking circuitry? You know, one of the phrases that I find helpful as I think about these processes, seek, receive, embody. And so in the preparation phase of the MDMA work or the ketamine assisted work or psilocybin, right? That's a few sessions at least of getting to know the client, helping them formulate a clear intention for how they wanna use that expanded state of consciousness answering and sorting through their hopes and fears about what may or may not happen on MDMA or whatever. And so a lot of that work is they are coming to us seeking healing, right? Seeking some help with their suffering. And then they 
enter into that MDMA session with preparation from us and feeling safe with us and talking about all the boundaries and what kind of contact is going to be okay physically and all kinds of stuff like that, then they go into the session seeking healing. And they may have a, a particular spin they put on it cognitively, like, I really want to understand this, or I really want to focus on, you know, what my father did to me, or why can't I ever forgive myself for killing that child in Iraq, you know, if they were a soldier, that's a strong intention, that's a longing, that's a seeking. So their seeking circuitry is harnessed to some intention for healing and how they hope that medicine session will be helpful to them. At the same time, we always encourage people to just be open to whatever arises. So to seek with curiosity as well, an openness to whatever might emerge. And then in the session, whether it's ketamine or psilocybin or MDMA, you form the intentions and everything going in, but then you let go and you receive. We talk about the inner healing intelligence. We talk about this, whatever comes up, it comes up for healing and we are here to support you. And we have deep trust and faith in the inner healing potential of you and your mind and your body. And so in the sessions, I think it's very much about people receiving. I don't think there is that much, and I don't witness much seeking going on. People are receiving insights. They're receiving different experiences. These things are just arising spontaneously. They're not trying to do anything. And if they start trying, or if they start thinking or wanting to talk too much or answer questions and things like that, we'll often say, how about you just go inside with that question? So when they're trying to figure things out, we encourage them often to not try and to just go back in and receive what is going to come to them in this beautiful altered state of consciousness where we're here to provide a safe, supportive, loving environment. And so I think during the sessions, it's very much about receiving. And some of that receiving is deeply satisfying to feel safe in your body like you've never felt before, to feel that transcendent love that you were talking about, but also profound love for yourself um, and maybe love for you know other people in your life to an intensity that you haven't felt before. Maybe even the people who have hurt you. That's a very receptive sort of state. And it's a, it's a state that's profoundly satisfying and soothing for people. Now, it doesn't mean that in MDMA sessions, there's not hard work that gets done. Sometimes people are doing very difficult, painful trauma processing. And some people will say, I don't know why they call this ecstasy, because it can be very difficult. But either way, they are receiving something. That trauma stuff is coming up, or the beautiful love and compassion is coming up spontaneously to them. They don't have to seek it. And the more they try to seek it, they can miss out on it. And then it's the integration where I think the seeking then really comes back into play. How do we help you not seek to grasp and hold on to that in a clinging sort of way, but how do we help you seek to integrate those experiences, those revelations, those resolutions about how you want to relate to your own body and to your children and things like that? So I think that's where the seeking really comes in again and helping people to seek out ways to support the integration of what they were getting, what they were receiving in that and how they can seek to embody it in their body, in their relationships, in their family. So that's where I think the seeking really comes back in again is in the inter- integration process. But during the sessions, I don't see that much seeking and seeking tends to get in the way. So you use the word self. Yeah, in the IFS sort of sense, yeah. IFS sense is very specific. It sounds to me like it's some kind of innate wisdom aspect of the person. You know, if you think of the Hindu tradition, Atman is Brahman, you know, that sort of thing. Even at that level, some people think of it as soul. So, you know, I'm not claiming there's any one unified way people think about self. Okay, so it's self with a big S, like Atman. Some people maybe with more of a Christian sort of framework and background would think of it as self with a capital S and think of that as one soul. From your experience, 
how many doses do they need? In each session, you get the first dose, say at like 9 a.m. in the morning, and then an hour and a half to two hours later, you're offered the supplemental dose, which is half of the first dose to extend the experience out to like maybe four and a half, five hours. But then in terms of sessions in which you get a dose of the medicine or the placebo, of course, in the research, um, though there's three of those in that study. Now, I know that Mount Sinai is looking at a study of, I think they're doing two versus three and some people at MGH are thinking of doing one versus two. I think three is good. I mean, I think that especially for, you know, people who've been really traumatized and maybe had trouble getting the help they need or have been betrayed by other people, it just really pains me to think we're going to say to them, okay, we're going to do a study and we're going to compare one to two. Like, why? Like, let's, let's not cheat people. Let's not scrimp on it. So I think it really just depends on the person. You know, research requires protocols. It requires three to five weeks between MDMA session one or medicine session one and medicine session two and medicine session three, three to five weeks between each of those. Otherwise you're out of the protocol window or something like that. But in private practice, someone might do an MDMA session and they might take three to six months to integrate that. Or maybe they'll do an MDMA session and then they'll do a series of brief ketamine sessions to help integrate that. And then maybe over the course of three or four years, they might do MDMA eh, four or five times. I think it's really important once this becomes legal within whatever parameters are set by the FDA to be flexible and to really, in a good trauma-informed way, empower people to make decisions for themselves about when it's going to do it with, of course, you know, our advice. We certainly had people in the study who we felt like they could use another session or two, but we can't give it to them. And then there's been people in the study who especially in the phase two, who did like one session, were like, I'm good. I don't need any more of this. Yeah. I'm, I'm good to go. Has there been any looking at the participants six months after the study, whether they've gone and done it on their own? People have not reported that and they followed them up for years. There was one mm-hmm. person who sought out MDMA to try and have a therapeutic experience, not to like, oh, let's go to a rave and have fun. And they found that they didn't get the benefit they got when they were working with two really good trauma therapists. Now, there may be some people who can make use of it, you know, in that way, and it would benefit them. But in the study, there has not been any evidence of people, you know, seeking it out in an addictive way, craving more MDMA. And again, part of it is their intention, their relationship to the medicine Mm -hmm. was to heal, not to have some kind of high or something like that. And it involves some hard work, you know, because part of it can really involve hard work of processing trauma. This is so in line with another quote from the article in 2020 that you wrote, where you say, we must acknowledge and address the real and essential moral dimension of psychological traumatization and human suffering more generally. We're inescapably moral beings. We can't help but value some things over others. We can't help but evaluate ourselves in terms of whether we're moving toward or away from these ways that we think are good ways to be a human being good ways to be a therapist, good ways to be a mother, a father, a child, a sibling. You know, we can't help this. Uh, One of my favorite philosophers is a guy named Charles Taylor, um, a Canadian philosopher, done a lot of different stuff, but this book, Sources of the Self, of his, just such a profound, wonderful book. And he talks about, there's a whole section called the self and moral space. Like, it's not an option for us as human beings to not be moral beings. In the West, including in psychotherapy, we've become very uh, morally inarticulate. Um, And so that there's these taboos around talking about our values or exploring the values of our clients, let alone acknowledging that someone who's, you know, addicted to a substance or to a behavior 
you know, they are valuing that behavior. It's not to judge them and say, oh, you're a moral failure. That's what's happened in our culture. Right? It's either you're a moral failure or it's a brain disease. But both of those are extreme and invalid views of addiction. We addictively pursue things to try to escape from our suffering. And when we, the things we are addictively pursuing, yeah, we are valuing them too much and in ways that are really harmful to us. Um, and one of the things that's, you know, we see in the psilocybin with addiction work, um, you know, people can have these powerful experiences where there's a massive reorganization of their values. Or Bill Miller, you know, who uh, developed motivational interviewing, which a lot of people know of, you know, very influential tool uh, in the addictions world for helping people talk about what do I like about using the substance? What do I not like about it? Help them process their ambivalence and help them engage in more talk about why they want to not do it and, and embrace the values of, of, of being not addicted to that substance. But Bill Miller wrote a, a book called Quantum Change, which is all about people having these spontaneous epiphanies and transformations, not with substances, actually. You know, and I emailed Bill about this and he was like, look, I think that's the most important work I ever did. This is the guy who invented motivational interviewing, which is used everywhere. And, and Bill, you know, was consulted to uh, Roland Griffiths at Hopkins. So this idea of quantum change, where you get a totally different experience of what it means to be you, what it means to be human, what is truly worth seeking and valuing. And you can come out of that with your values completely reorganized. And I think, you know, MDMA and psilocybin and even ketamine can be things that can give people opportunities with the right support to massively reorganize their values in a way that it's not us saying like, oh, those are bad values. No, we just provide the space for them to discover for themselves. And then we support them to integrate these new values for what's really going to bring them happiness and, and healing and, and love and joy in their lives. As someone who's practiced meditation and years being steeped in Buddhist psychology and Buddhist philosophy, do you have the sense that this is something that cannot be achieved for people who have very powerful trauma histories that using contemplative practice and moral philosophy of Buddhism in terms of right view, right intention, right conduct, that this is something they really wouldn't get as much value out of? Or is it just that MDMA, psilocybin may be a way to point them in that direction and get them set up to then be a, a practitioner? There's always like the slow road and then the potential breakthroughs that people can have, whether that's a breakthrough you have in a meditation retreat or a breakthrough you have in an MDMA assisted session. But then there's, you know, there's the work, there's the discipline of doing practices, mindfulness practices, compassion practices. Buddhism is very rich with its practices. And of course, Buddhism has many different traditions and there's mm -hmm. tantric practices in Tibetan mm -hmm. Buddhism. And I would say that psychedelics are kind of like a tantra. And I'm not just saying this, others have said this too. That's one way we can think about psychedelics is like a, a tantra. And it may be that psychedelics and Buddhism become integrated in, in the West in, in very interesting ways. So, for, but you're asking a, a question about people who are severely trauma. Yes, I am. Early attachment trauma. What I can say is that everybody's life is an unfolding mystery and I can't know how it's going to unfold for anyone, even with the most loving, supportive therapists and family members and meditation teachers. But I can say that I have seen people get very powerful healing from Buddhist practice, 
from different psychotherapies, different trauma-focused therapies, and now I'm seeing it with the MDMA work and, and the ketamine work and, and, and people doing you know, psilocybin underground and things like that. So I think these are all tools people can use. And I am very hopeful for people's ability to transform. And one of the things we saw in the MDMA study is that even, you know, Bessel van der Kolk, who's a PI here in Boston, an old colleague and friend of mine, you know, Bessel was trying to tell MAPS, no, don't let the complex trauma people with a severe childhood abuse into the study. We don't want to risk not getting this approved. You know, let's just get it approved for PTSD and then we'll help those people later. And the MAPS people are like, no, no, we've seen that this can help them. And Bessel now is like just absolutely delighted. He's like, I'm so glad you guys didn't listen to me because the people with childhood trauma had just as much improvement from the MDMA in this study that was just published in Nature Medicine from the um, phase three, part one study. And people with the dissociative subtype who are dissociated, and as you've used a word a lot, shut down a lot of the time, they had equal or even greater benefit um, than people who didn't have the dissociative subtype. So I have tremendous hope born of experience direct experience that I've seen in this work, and then the data that is coming out of the MAP study, people can really benefit, even people with very severe complex PTSD and can really heal. At the same time, there are mysteries here. And who knows, you know, Buddhists talk about karma and they talk about these other things. These are charged topics potentially as well. But, you know, what are the constraints on any particular individual's life? What are they here to learn in this life? We can't claim to know. And, you know, some people are born and get cancer and die before they're age two years old. And maybe that's actually a profoundly meaningful life in some way that we don't understand. People can heal, but I also don't want to put on some thing of like, oh, if you don't heal, there's something wrong with you. Or So I just want to acknowledge the kind of the complexity and the mystery of, of healing as well. Yes, I agree with you. You know, in my mind, the receptors are there because the human brain has the capacity to produce all of these effects on its own, given the right context. That's what psychedelic means. It just means right. mind manifesting, but it's not just medicine right. that manifest mind, the fullness of mind and love and wisdom and compassion and joy and play. Yeah, it doesn't have to be these medicines. And I definitely don't want to give people the message that I think in order to heal from trauma, you know, you really should be doing MDMA or anything else. (laughs) Definitely not. You know, it's up to people and in their life, they are going to find what feels right for them. And I totally support that. I want to just double back because you're such a good person to really drive this home. We're such a pleasure oriented culture. Uh, I don't think people have a very good understanding of primordial ignorance, the basic nature of what happens for human beings at a very innate level, that sort of misapprehension of otherness, of separateness. And I don't mean oneness, we're all one. I mean, the way in which everything arises co-existent and co-dependent upon everything else There is a way in which you're inviting, particularly in the 2020 article, you're just inviting people to embrace a deeper understanding of the wisdom of suffering, that there is no awakening ultimately without recognizing the nature of suffering. Yeah, and suffering in the body, especially, you know, we are embodied beings that cling to the experience of being a separate self. And cling to, you know, in IFS terms, we cling to different parts of ourselves, even at different times. And yeah, suffering is part of life and it can be very painful, but it's also incredibly beautiful. You know, one of the 
more moving experiences I've had with psychedelics is the experience of being just pure consciousness with no self other and experiencing this longing to be embodied and to love and play with other beings. But that also includes suffering in my body and with other beings. And that I think, you know, that's just a beautiful aspect of existence. Yes, it's really painful. And of course, a lot of people are suffering without support to access the potential wisdom of the suffering in their body and how that can unfold to healing. But I do think that it's just fundamental to existence and suffering. And this isn't just Buddhism, right? In Christianity, I mean, suffering Absolutely. can be redemptive, right? It can be a vehicle to opening the heart, to love, to agape, um, you know, this transcendent love. Every time I do one of these episodes where we're talking about therapies that people can't get access to, it's always frustrating because people hear about the benefits and then of course we have to talk about FDA, the path to making these things available. So is, is there anything you want to say along those lines? There are people at MAPS and people supporting MAPS to work on getting the MDMA-assisted cover by insurance. Now, of course, not everybody's insured, but there are really smart, hardworking people who are and who know that space who are working on that. And so there's some hope there. Um, and I would also say that, again, the ketamine-assisted psychotherapy is legal now. And there are people who are very wise, competent trauma therapists a substantial percentage of them are also meditators who are doing amazing work with ketamine assisted psychotherapy for trauma, you know, but still it can be expensive. I mean, I remember listening to a podcast with Veronica Gold, where she talked about the efforts they made to try and create a center to, to offer for free to people and how hard that is because the people with the money and the foundations don't really want to fund open-ended treatment. That's yeah. These are very difficult, very painful issues and questions. And there's so much inequality uh, in our society. And there's so many people who are not getting the help they need. And I have a website on child abuse issues and sexual assault issues. And I talk to people all the time. Just today, I talked to someone in Tucson, Arizona, has a psychiatrist who started out warm and friendly and now just, you know, talks to him for 10 minutes and gives him medicines and aren't really helping him. And he doesn't really feel cared for. And he's tried to get help with his childhood trauma and, and the mass shooting that he was involved in. I was a victim, of course. And, and you know, and the therapist just like, oh, I don't know how to help you. Uh, here, go to this site online or whatever. And see, you know, there's a center in Tucson, um, which is doing ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. And, the, and the, the biographies of the therapist, a lot of them seem pretty well-trained in trauma and somatic experiencing and other things. So maybe, you know, this guy will be able to, to find help there. And, and fortunately, they take his insurance, you know. But for a lot of people, yeah, it's very tough. Just basic, good trauma-informed therapy isn't even available in our community. Or if it is, it's people who only take private pay and who have waiting lists or don't even have a waiting list anymore because it's just too long and that sort of thing. It's really tragic. Um, there's so much suffering. There's so much trauma. And there's and our society and our culture and our politics um, are not set up to care for people. This is true. It is a frustration for all of us. You know, and some good things are happening and have been happening. So there's hope too. So in general, you would say if someone's interested, at least right now, they might look to see if there is a ketamine assisted psychotherapy center, not a ketamine infusion center. Yeah. And then don't just take that at face value. See if these are people who, you know, who right. know how to work with trauma, who know how to work with the body, who can really hold that space in a very mindful mm -hmm. and compassionate way. 
and can really serve people well and not re-traumatize them and things like that. And then with MDMA, you know, there aren't that many study sites. There's not that much opportunity to get that treatment. What should people do? Well, hold tight. (laughs) If it continues to um, come out of the research the way it has, um, it looks like it could be a legal treatment in 2023, early 2024. You know, MAPS has a very big initiative to train therapists. And then they're, you know, so like Rachel Yehuda at Mount Sinai, she's also working with MAPS to set up a training center there in an academic, you know, VA setting, which is beautiful. There are things happening. And, you know, Rick is a genius and Rick can bring together lots of people. You know, he's really focused on training a lot of people and training therapists of color. So there are things happening that hopefully once it becomes legal, if it does, there will be more access, still a lot more to do. But I think things are moving in a positive direction. Great. If people do find some of the things I'm saying interesting, I, you know, I do have some writings on these things. So that you really like that that editorial I wrote in 2020. Mm-hmm. My website is jimhopper.com, and my publications are the PDFs are you know available from the publications page. And then I have a section on brain happiness and healing, where I lay out this kind of Buddhist neuroscience informed view and these fundamental cycles of suffering and fundamental cycles of healing, seeking to engage with and transform suffering and seeking what I call true goods that can be very transformative, as I've talked about. Do you find that the Buddhist psychological view is useful in the room with your patients? Yeah, though it doesn't always have to be articulated, you know, as a Buddhist psychological. After 35 years of, you know, mostly daily meditation and retreats and things like that, and studying this, I can't help but think that way. And I can't help but articulate things that way and encourage my clients to reflect upon and, and relate to their experience in some of these ways, if, if they find it helpful. So yeah, I find it tremendously helpful to think of things in terms of Buddhist ideas and, you know, aversion and craving and ignorance and attachment and the benefits of mindfulness and loving kindness and Buddhist ideas and practices. Yeah, I find them and my clients find them very helpful. And sometimes they're explicitly articulated in that way if they have an interest and often it's Mm -hmm. it's implicit. When you're doing the integration work after ketamine or MDMA, do you find that you are training your patients in particular uh, heart opening practices from the Buddhist tradition? Sometimes, yeah. Basic meta practice. Also sometimes help them make a distinction between kindness and compassion. And kindness is wanting others to be happy. And compassion is wanting others to be free of suffering. And then I talk about equanimity and sympathetic joy, you know, so the four Brahma Viharas. And so I, I would like to introduce that framework to people and encourage them to explore those if it seems like something that could be helpful to them. And so if that's the case, do they ever report to you that the experience they've had on MDMA informs the experience that they have with the, some of the heart opening practices? Maybe if someone was doing a little meta practice before they did the MDMA, and then they got an experience of heart opening, like way beyond anything they've experienced in their regular life in the practice, then when they go down to sit and, and, and do a meta practice, I mean, they, there's a memory, an embodied memory that can be very powerful that they can tap back into. There's ways to facilitate that, you know, in terms of other reminders they might have from the session, you know, imagery, the music is very powerful part of these MDMA assisted sessions. And so sometimes people will listen, will listen to some of the music they listen to at the time to help them reconnect to and access that, that love and compassion 
and, and use that as a preparation or even weave it into their meditation practice. And you know, so we just encourage people to be creative and find what helps them stay connected to what they accessed, not cling and grasp to it, but connect to it and integrate it um, through with whatever practices and supports, you know, visual, embodied, verbal, you know, mantra, whatever might work. So people might be wondering why music is such a big part of this. What in the world does music have to do with MDMA? Yeah, I mean, we can go all the way back to, you know, like indigenous shamanic cultures and practices and, you know, people singing and drumming and things like that and how that can really alter people's consciousness and expand their consciousness. And then there's a tradition that Michael Pollan, you know, wrote so nicely about and how to change your mind of the development of the principles and practices of psychedelic psychotherapy in the 50s and 60s and how the music with the headphones and the eye shades came about and how people just found it really helpful and that the the music can be a support to kind of ferry people along in a way. When the music's working really well, it's just supporting what's already emerging for them. And, you know, so when we're sitting there as the therapist, you know, we're trying to really be tuned into the person and we might intuitively sense or from watching what's happening in their body, that maybe it's time to bring in some more activating music that could really help process it. Or maybe it's time to shift to something much more spacious and gentle and open. Um, and it's, so it supports their unfolding embodied and healing experience is what we find. In real time in the session, you can have interaction with the person who's doing the substance yeah. and they can report something to you that might cause you to think, hmm, okay, maybe they need this kind of music to either enable that or to expand it or possibly shift it. Though, you know, we want to be thoughtful about that. We don't want to be overthinking it and, you know, trying to, oh, mm -hmm. wait, I should put on this song or that song. Yeah, the, the general rhythm of these sessions is people alternate between being inside with mm -hmm. their eyes closed and the eye shades on in the music and then coming out to report to us what they've experienced. Maybe talk to us a little bit. Of course, some mm -hmm. people are more talkative and, and really want to talk for a good 15, 20 minutes. And we're not going to say, no, you can't talk to us, right? So, yeah, people go inside and then they come out. They go inside and then they come out. And sometimes when they come out, based on what they report, we may shift the music a bit. Or they may just say, you know, I really don't like this. Can you do something different? You know, sometimes just straight out, like, I don't like this music. But sometimes there's no verbal communication. It's just an intuitive sense you get from seeing the tension or the movement in their body. Are you trusting in your own intuition of what is emerging and has been unfolding in the last couple hours and where they might be now in your work with a variety of other people, you know, in the protocol? And so some of it's intuition and they're not saying anything about it. And they may not even, they may still be inside and you just queue up over in a different direction on the playlist. Having training in a somatic psychotherapy of some kind would be very useful for being able to understand not just the physiological responses to what's happening, but also in general, what the system is doing with MDMA. Definitely. You know, so when we did the, the MAPS training, you know, part of that was two, one was five days and one was six days with Michael and Andy Midhofer. And a lot, what we did mostly was we watched videos of sessions and talked about them. One of the things that they kept coming back to was, you know, we're giving you this training here and you're, you're seeing how we work and you see how these healing processes can happen. But we strongly encourage you look into somatic based therapies, good trauma, somatic therapy, somatic experiencing, sensory motor psychotherapy, as well as 
to maybe look into IFS or other models that really look at the multiplicity of the psyche and to have that be in your toolbox. And then they also really encouraged us to familiarize yourself if we feel it could be helpful for us or a fit for us with Stan Groff's work, um, including on the perinatal matrices, because those things can come up too in these sessions. So that was kind of a refrain from Michael and Annie. As a therapist, you're going to bring in many different skills and modalities you've learned, but keep in mind that what we found over 20 years of doing this work is that somatic methods, working with the multiplicity, perhaps with IFS, and knowing the Graphian model of these perinatal matrices and that birth sort of stuff that can come up, mm-hmm. that we would advise you to consider these very seriously and, and, and perhaps you know get some training in those. I'm sorry, but it's just heartbreaking. When I have conversations like this about therapies that really work, and I think most of the clinicians that are coming out of graduate school programs only have cognitive behavioral therapy as their training. There's these splits that happen in the field, and there's these fiefdoms that get set up in academia and who gets NIH grants and things like that. Yeah. One nice, really beautiful development I see coming out of this, though, is the, the conjoint couples therapy. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's a cognitive behavioral couples therapy for PTSD, where they work with one person who has PTSD and their partner who does not, but of course is affected by their, their trauma and the PTSD. They do MDMA sessions with both of them. They've had to adapt and modify some of their cognitive behavioral ways of doing this. And basically, they're teaching them the cognitive behavioral Uh, principles and methods and they get to practice them in the regular Mm -hmm. sessions but when it's the mdma sessions it's it's very hands-off from the therapist and people then spontaneously may draw on these things that they've learned in the early cognitive behavioral sessions in their conversations they have in the mdma sessions and so there can be this beautiful confluence or, or meeting of some really nice cognitive behavioral tools with the incredible healing the embodied wisdom and love and all that that can come up on MDMA. And so I think hopefully we're going to see people weaving these things together more. And I think part of it is going to be people who are very into the cognitive behavioral mode to rethink some of their understanding of what's going on, what healing involves, and how much innate capacity for healing there is in people. This psychedelic and MDMA revolution, you know, I have some hope it's going to work its way into a, a lot of things and enrich the cognitive behavioral tradition and bring it together maybe with not just the MDMA and psychedelics, but maybe some of these somatic things and, and all these you know, other really nice interventions that have come out, of, especially the trauma world in the last few decades. Yes. You know, we yes. all learn and are humbled by you know, people who challenge us that we've, we've got some new things to learn in order to really show up for them and be helpful to them. And, and that's, you know, for the people I know who are looking for more training, that's where it always comes from. It's a compassion. It's a wanting to help their clients and realizing they're missing some important tools to help their clients. Well, this has been such a rich and informative conversation. I deeply thank you so much for the way you've shown up and just been so generous with your wisdom and knowledge. It's so nice to talk to you. And I'm really grateful that you invited me and it's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to today's show. To get in touch, please visit groundlessground.com. Let's dedicate our efforts to the healing of our planet and all its inhabitants. See you next time on the Groundless Ground.